You know, people often ask us what we want. You ever notice that? People say, what do you want for Christmas? People will say to you, what do you want for your birthday? They might say, what do you want for dinner? Or the question, young people, that you always like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't know. When I grow up, I'll let you know. People ask, where do you want to go to school? Where do you want to work? What, do you, what kind of work do you want to do? Where do you want to live? There's all of these questions about what is it that we want. But one question I think that we do not ask often enough is a question that we should ask ourselves. And it's a question of deep down inside, you know, when I'm really alone with myself, what is it that I really desire? What do I desire? One, one clue to answer that question is, is what occupies my thoughts? What is it that, that occupies my thoughts? When I'm, when I'm sitting there by myself staring out the window or whatever it is, driving, what is it that I think about? What occupies my thoughts? Beloved, you can take this to the bank. What you think drives what you desire. And what you desire drives what you do. What you think drives what you desire. And what you desire drives what you do. If there are certain outcomes in your life that that you are not happy with, You need to move all the way back to what is it that you're thinking about because that will will determine what you desire and ultimately you do what you desire to do. We all do. We all do what we desire. Open your Bibles to Psalm 67. It's good to know that we have air cover this morning. Makes me more confident. got combat air patrol flying overhead, right? It's good. Psalm 67. Someone asked me just before the service, are we ever going to get back to Matthew? The answer is yes, we are going to get back to Matthew. Lord willing, we'll get back to Matthew next week. I, I didn't want to go immediately back to Matthew after the glorious week we had last week. And in fact, things that were said last week brought Psalm 67 to my mind. And I've been thinking about it a lot this week and wanted to share the fruit of those thoughts and studies with you this morning, and true confession, I just wasn't up to dealing with Judas yet. Because when we get back to Matthew, we arrive in chapter 26, and the first thing we got to deal with is, is the betrayal of Judas, and I just didn't want to start the new year that way. Okay, So here we are, Psalm 67. Psalm 67 is an interesting Psalm in itself, you can see there in the, in the superscript, which is part of the text, says it's for the choir director with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. The author is anonymous. It is a psalm or a song written to be accompanied by musical instrumentation, stringed instruments, most of which would sound very weird to our ears. And it was designed to be sung by the Levitical choir and, of course, then heard and meditated upon by the people of God. 
But as we look at this psalm together, and there are just seven verses here in Psalm 67, what I want to draw out of this are three God-honoring, life-altering desires that should rightfully occupy our minds and hearts in this new year. So I want to deal with the desires, and we'll deal with the desires by dealing with the mind, that which we think on. So as we think on this psalm, it will change our desires, it will lodge godly desires, God-honoring, life-altering desires, which of course will ultimately change what we do. So there are three of them here in this psalm. The first is here in verse 1 and 2, and it is a desire for God's blessing. The first God-honoring, life-altering desire is a desire for God's blessing. Follow along here as we read, beginning in verse 1. God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. God, be gracious to us and bless us. Cause your face, his face, to shine upon us. If those words are familiar to you, they should be. They are drawn from the ironic blessing of Numbers 6. This would be the blessing that Aaron would have, would have pronounced over the people of Israel. This is something that was very familiar to them and, of course, would be familiar to you as you have read through the book of Numbers. What is interesting, I think, is that the psalmist here transforms it from a blessing spoken by a priest over them to something, a prayer request, in which the, the speaker includes himself. Notice the us. Be gracious to us. Originally, may the Lord be gracious to you. So he now includes himself into the blessing and transforms the ironic blessing into a prayer request. It is, as it says here, uh, something to be sung. It's to be sung by the Levitical choir. They're to sing it over and over again. And, of course, as, uh, as um, people who are exposed to the same songs over and over again, they have a way of, of uh, filtering down into our hearts and minds, don't they? We find ourselves uh, whistling, well, maybe not whistling, but, uh, but humming certain tunes or singing certain lyrics to ourselves. They become a part of who we are, and I think that that's what this is designed to do. This is not a performance psalm. This is a psalm that is to be sung and to be um, brought, taken in, meditated upon, and become part of the fabric of who we are. So, this is something the people of Israel are not to forget. They are not to forget this. And essentially here, in verse 1, the, the prayer request is a call for God to be gracious. You see that? God to be gracious to them for God to bless them, and for God to cause his face to shine upon them. These three expressions are all essentially uh, requesting the same thing. There are different ways of, of requesting the same basic thing. And what it is, is the presence of God among his people. That's what this is all about. God be gracious to us. God bless us. God cause your face to shine upon us is all essentially one way, the same way, different angles, but the same way to say that, that God be present among us. God be present among us. And the reason that I say that is because it is impossible to have the blessing of God uh, void of the person of God. 
So a call for God to bless you, a call for God to be gracious to you, a call for God to look upon you with favor is a call for God to be with you, to be present with you. And beloved, it's the same, it's the same idea for us. When we pray for God to, to extend his grace, how often we pray that, right? Oh, Lord, please multiply your grace to so-and-so. They're going through this difficult time. Or, or Lord, please pour your grace upon me. I'm in this, in this incredible struggle at the moment. When we are praying that, whether we know it or not, what we are praying for is that God would draw that person or us near to him in trust, in faith, so that they or we might know his loving presence in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really what it is that we are requesting. Grace is not a power to be dispensed. We're not praying, oh Lord, uh, extend this woofle dust on this person and enable them to you know, get through this difficult situation. When we pray for the grace of God, we are praying for the presence of God. And the grace of God is, is concentrated in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are praying that God would draw us or this individual to Christ in faith and trust and that they might know the love of God as it is revealed to them. So God be gracious to us. Bless us. Cause his face to shine upon us. May we be drawn into your presence. Selah. Notice that in the text there, right? Selah. It's an interesting uh, word. Selah, we're not sure exactly what it means. It is part of the text. It could mean a pause. A pause. It could mean a musical interlude. It could mean a crescendo in the music. So all of those are well within the possibility of this particular word. And notice, this is, this is for the choir director. So these are, these are musical notations, as it were, for the choir director. This might be fortissimo. For those of you who are musically inclined, right? But something is to happen here. It may be that the music is now to get louder here before the next verse is sung. It, it may be that there could be a musical interlude here, a pause, a time to reflect upon what has been said. And in fact, that's what I think is going on here, that this is an opportunity to reflect. You know, the, the, if, there's a, if there's a musical interlude in, in, in worship music, the purpose of the musical interlude is not to show off the skills of the musicians. The purpose of the musical interlude is for the people of God to pause and think and reflect upon that which they have just said. Or sung. There's a way, you know, when you go verse to verse to verse to verse to verse, you, you kind of get yourself into autopilot and you don't think about anything. You just repeat it. So, selah, pause. Think. Think about what? How about this? How about thinking about why does the psalmist ask for God's blessing? Why ask for God's blessing? Oh, David, that's apparent. I need it. 
But as we follow the psalm here, actually, that's not the reason that is given. Notice in verse 2. That your way may be known on the earth and your salvation among all the nations. Oh, God, be gracious to us. God, bless us. God, cause your face to shine upon us. Pause. Why? Why? So that your way may be known on the earth. So that your salvation may be known among the nations. I mean, ultimately, why bless us, Lord? Why should you bless us? Why do we want you to bless us? Why do we want your presence among us? Answer? So that the unbelieving world will sit up and take notice. So that the unbelieving world will encounter the one true God. And will be ultimately drawn to him. Do you see how that changes this whole prayer? I mean, it transforms it now. This is no longer a prayer that, that is just focused on me and my needs. This is, a, this is a prayer that stretches out to the world. Yes, it begins with me. It begins with us. But it's so much bigger than that. That your way may be known on the earth. Your salvation among the nations. There, there is a, a universal application of this. And by the way, this is absolutely in keeping with God's original intent for his ancient peoples. Keep your, keep your thumb or whatever you have to do to be able to find your way back to Psalm 67. But turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. And I want to look at verses 5 and 6. I'll just do that. 5 and 6. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... Then you will be my own possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. O Lord, why set your face in kindness upon these ancient people? Why deliver them from the bondage of Egypt? So that you will be, you are constituted to me, a holy nation, a priesthood. You are to make my ways known throughout the earth. That's why. That's why I have delivered you, to make me known. To make me known. Turn with me to to the right here, to Deuteronomy chapter 4, as we just kind of think about this, develop this idea a little bit. This idea of making God known. Oh Lord, why do you bless your people? Why be gracious to your people? Why make your face to shine upon your people? So that the world will see. That the world will know. That the world will believe that I am. So here we are in, in, uh, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and... I get to the right place here. And uh, notice, uh, notice in verses 5 and following. 
By the way, I think this is a key passage. Say this. I think this is a key interpretive passage for uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. There are some very strange things to our ears in uh, the first five books of Moses, aren't there? And uh, I think if you get your arms around verses 5 through 8 of Deuteronomy chapter 4, it doesn't mean the strange things will necessarily yield themselves to you, but what it means is you will approach the strange things with the right attitude so that you can unwind them and try to figure out what do they mean both historically and what is the application of all of it. So here it is, verse 5, chapter 4. Where the Lord says, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as Moses says it, just as the Lord my God commanded me. Why? That you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them. For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Huh. You mean all of those things in Leviticus that are really strange sounding to our, our ears? are designed so that the world would look, would sit up and take notice and say, what a great God you have, what a, what a wise and discerning people you have become, and your God is so close and so near, and he provides for your needs. Yes. They are ultimately evangelistic. It is ultimately evangelistic. It is ultimately to proclaim the glory of God. Beloved, foundational to the fabric of the Mosaic Covenant is the idea that God would tangibly bless his people. If you will obey my voice, if you will hear and obey my voice, I will bless you, right? I mean, you can go to Deuteronomy 28 and you, and you see the listing of the blessings. And, and they're very tangible. It talks about your, your, your herds will, will produce. It talks about your wives being able to have children. It says you will, you will not go hungry and that your enemies will scatter before you. And, and on and on it goes. If you will obey my voice. If you will keep my commandments. If you will walk in my way. If you will fulfill your calling, which is a holy nation, a royal priesthood, right? If you will do these things, I will pour out my blessings on you. Why? So that the watching world will see and will be drawn to the one true God. But we don't live under the Mosaic Covenant. We don't live under the old covenant, do we? But, but the truth, the, 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 the truth underlying this remains true. And, and that is, it is our relationship with the living God that remains the basis under which God makes himself known. John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It is our relationship to God in Christ that makes him known to the world. They are watching. They are learning. And God in his mercy and grace opens people's eyes. 
Jesus says in John 13, they will, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Your love for one another. <coughs> Pardon me. Now, back to Psalm 67. What is implicit here in Psalm 67? Is a prohibition against the desiring of God's blessings so that they might terminate on us. That the, the ultimate purpose is lies within us. The notion that, that, that we pray and ask God to, to care for us, to bless us, to make himself known to us in his grace so that our life will be easier. It's implicit here. And what is implicit here is explicit in the book of James. James chapter 4 and verse 3, where James says, You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Interesting, huh? God not answering my prayers. Why? Well, perhaps it's because the motive behind my prayers is faulty. Perhaps it is because my, my view of the world doesn't really extend beyond myself and my own immediate little family. Oh, God, make my life easier. Now, we wouldn't express it exactly like that, right? We'd dress it up with a lot of God talk in between. But, but ultimately, if we could boil the prayer down, oh, oh, God, make my life easier. Just make me, make my, I don't want to suffer. The first God-honoring, life-altering desire is a desire for God's blessing, a right desire for God's blessing. Secondly, secondly, is a desire for God's glory. Secondly, is a desire for God's glory. Verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Down to verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Over and over again. This refrain, right? Let the nations be glad. Let the peoples praise you. Let the pagans, let the Gentiles, let those outside of the people of God praise your name. The desire here is, is first and foremost simply this, is that the nations would recognize the futility of their own so-called gods. That they would recognize that, that that which they are trusting in is no god at all. And that they would recognize the supremacy of the one true God of Israel. And in the response to that recognition, they would join with Israel in worshiping the one true God. This is a call, a longing for Gentile worship. A longing for the Gentiles to join with the people of God, for the, for the unbelieving world to join with the people of God, for the pagans to join with the people of God and worship the one true God. And by the way, if it's um, like going to strafe me, you'll let me know. 
She's saying duck. Okay, thanks. I'm looking over there. If I see that happening, I'm going down. Uh, beloved, this is absolutely in keeping with the, um, the Abrahamic covenant. Right? Remember God's promise to Abraham? In you, all the peoples of the world will what? Be blessed. Be blessed. God's purposes have always extended beyond the nation of Israel. They've extended beyond the nation of Israel. It is that Israel might fulfill the great purpose for which God has called her out of darkness and established her as a people. Now, again, a reading of the Old Testament, it does, you, know, you don't have to read very far to see how often they lost sight of this reality, how often they messed up, how often they fell short, how often they descended into their own sin, stumbled and fell. But this psalm here, Psalm 67, I, I, it expresses the greatest and loftiest and most noble goal for the nation of Israel. And what better thing to sing about, huh? What better thing to keep before your heart and mind than this wonderful, God-honoring, life-altering desire. Let the nations be glad. Now, why should the nations worship the Lord? Why should they? Interestingly, there is an answer provided here in the psalm itself. And, and instructive, I think, within the answer is, a, is an evangelistic methodology. I'll kind of play it out here for you a little bit. Here in verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Why? For you will judge the peoples with uprightness. The idea of judge here is the idea of rule over. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Why should the nations worship God? Answer, because of his rule. Because of his rule. This, this statement about judging the peoples, it, it's speaking about the sovereign creator and his involvement in the affairs of men. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the lawgiver. He is the judge. And they need to understand that. They are, they are called to understand these realities that express and reveal the nature and character of God. I tell you that this is an evangelistic methodology, and I, and I can demonstrate that to you in the book of Acts. So I want you to do that. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17. <clears throat> Actually, um, I'm going to turn you to Acts 13 first. That way we stay in numerical order. Acts 13... We'll pick it up in verse 13. This is Paul's first missionary journey. Believe me, Paul is steeped in Psalm 67. Okay? He is steeped in Psalm 67. So, verse 13, Acts chapter 13. Now, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Going on from Perga, they arrived in Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. 
The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it for a period of about 40 years. He put up with them in the wilderness, and on and on he goes. And he recounts the history of the nation of Israel, right? And their deliverance. And he talks about Abraham. And then he talks about David. And he talks about Jesus and Jesus being put to death and and the fact that we are witnesses to his resurrection. And he basically recounts, beginning with the Old Testament forward, and without taking the time to exposit Acts chapter 13, basically what this sermon is, is an exposition of the Old Testament and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He is the long-awaited one. He is the greater son of David. Notice even verse 36, for David, after he had served uh, the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay, but whom God raised did not undergo decay. So he's even saying he's the greater son of David. Listen, David served God. He died. He's still in his grave. This one, the greater one, the fulfillment, the greater son of David lives. Why do I point all that out? Because this is an evangelistic message. And this is an evangelistic message built upon the exposition of the scriptures. Why? Because it is going to a people who already have the scriptures, who already believe the scriptures, and it is demonstrating to them the fulfillment of those scriptures in Christ. Hang on to that. And then turn to Acts 17. Acts 17 and verse 22. Paul is here at Athens. Athens is the, the, uh, the hub of pagan philosophical attainment, right? This is the height of wisdom and understanding for those who have no knowledge of the one true God. So, verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. That's the place where all the pointy-headed people get together and debate. And he said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar to this, with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. First point. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hand, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Stop. He speaks to these people not from the Old Testament. He doesn't say that, I want to proclaim to you the one who has come to fulfill the ancient prophecies. No, he starts and he says, listen, you're worshiping everything. You have no idea where the truth is. In fact, you've even got an altar to an unknown God in case you missed one. But I want to tell you about the creator. I want to tell you about the creator. I want to tell you about the one who made you and all that is. Who needs nothing from human hands. He needs nothing from you. Why? Because he created you. He sustains you. And in fact, he, he established where you even live. The very, the very language you speak is because of his rule, his judgment over the affairs of mankind. So he builds this sermon, this evangelistic sermon, back with the creator God. 
And then he brings it forward, of course, right? And he says, verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Listen, there was a time when, when he kind of let you go your own way, but, but he's now telling you you must repent because, verse 31, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So he proclaims Jesus. But notice how differently he starts and how he gets there. How he gets there. Psalm 67. Selah. Selah. Think about it. Think about it. Now, I don't have time for you to think about it now. I mean, you think about it a little bit. You ought to really think about it. You ought to really think about it. Why should the nations worship the Lord? Verse 4, because of his rule. Verses 6 and 7, because of his provision. End of verse 5, let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. He blesses us that the ends of the earth may fear him. Because of his rule over you, he is the creator. But beyond that, because of his provision for you, he is the sustainer of all. God is the provider and sustainer of all good things. And you are to recognize that reality. Listen, go with me uh, back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14. Probably should have had you keep your finger there, but I didn't. Acts 14. Paul is in Lystra, speaking to pagans. Notice in verse 16, his evangelistic message to them. Verse 16 of Acts chapter 14. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way. Yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Or as Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Why should the pagans worship God? Answer, because he feeds them. Because he grants them the ability to have children. Because he gives them the ability to to marry and be happily married. Because he sends rain to, to nourish their crops. He sends sun. The sun rises on them every day because of his goodness to them. Listen, if I had to bundle all this up, I would say this is all the providence of God. Why should your pagan neighbor worship God? Because of God's good providence in his life or her life. And it's up to us to point it out to them. It's up to us to point it out to them. Beloved, recognition, recognition of God's 
blessings encourages true worship. We worship God in recognition of his true blessing upon us. That's because gratitude stimulates worship. And conversely, ingratitude is characteristic of unbelief. Romans chapter 1, verse 21, they did not thank God. And God gave them over to darkened hearts. Gratitude stimulates worship. Ingratitude stimulates unbelief. That's, that's instructive for you and me. It's definitely instructive for those who are outside of the family of God. Selah. Think about these things. Third. The third God-honoring, life-altering desire. First, a desire for God's blessing. Second, a desire for God's glory. Third, a desire for God's kingdom. A desire for God's kingdom. Now, this takes us outside of Psalm 67, at least but it doesn't take us outside of the meaning of Psalm 67. I want to turn you over to Zechariah, way at the end of the Old Testament. You know, Zechariah is back there at the end. Chapter 14, right before Malachi. I mean, Psalm 67 There's an obvious passion for Gentile worship, isn't there? It's from Psalm 67, I believe, that John Piper wrote his his eminently quotable statement, missions exist because worship doesn't, right? In fact, it was that statement last week that turned my mind first to Psalm 67 and got this whole thing started. Missions exist because worship doesn't, and that's really, really true. It's really, really true. And for the sake of the name, for the last 2,000 years, people have gone out to make him known that the nations might worship the one true God. The result of 2,000 years of, of faithful effort have been a great and varied multitude called the church. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, speaks of them before the throne of Christ, following the rapture of the church, in which there are those drawn from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, kind of indicating that there there are people drawn from all over and brought before the throne of Christ. But, beloved, that does not exhaust this Psalm 67. That does not fully and finally fill up the promise and potential of Psalm 67. This is a psalm of Israel. This is a psalm of Israel. This is a psalm that was given by inspiration to the nation of Israel. It is their psalm. It is their psalm. And it will find its final and fullest fulfillment in the great messianic kingdom to come. In that kingdom, when a redeemed Israel will finally assume her rightful role as a missionary people, ruling over the nations and revealing the Lord God to all. 
That is the trajectory of Psalm 67. It doesn't terminate in the church. There is application into the church, to be sure, but it moves beyond the church. Its final and ultimate fulfillment lie in things to come. The promise of God in the Old Testament that the Gentiles flooding in to the worship of Israel is in many, many places. Many places. I turn you to Zechariah chapter 14 as just one of those. And, I, and it's important here in Zechariah 14 because it, it's speaking about the time following the return of Christ. Earlier in the chapter, Christ returns, right? And he defends the nation and, and the city of Jerusalem against the enemies that have surrounded it at Armageddon and seek to destroy it. And Christ comes and, and destroys those enemies and he establishes his great kingdom. And the end of chapter 14 speaks of that kingdom time. And what I want you to see in verses 16 through 19 here is this interesting ceremony that characterizes the great messianic kingdom. Then it will come about, verse 16, that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. What is that about? What is that about? I'm glad you asked me. This is a prophecy of the time to come when the nations will come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, a little history for you. The worship calendar of the nation of Israel was anchored in three festivals, three feasts, three seven-day-long celebrations. All males of age were expected to travel three times a year to the place where God had placed his name in the representation of the ark to come before the Lord to celebrate a feast. There were three of them. I won't turn you there just for sake of time. You can mark them down, check it on your own. Deuteronomy 16, 16, Exodus 23, 14 to 19. It is very, very clear. Three feasts, three mandatory attendances. The three feasts are, number one, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It, it, it comes at the time of the barley harvest. It occurs in the first month called Nisan, it is March, April of our calendar year, and it follows the Passover. Exodus 23, verses 5 and 6. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. The second feast is the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. It uh, coincides with the wheat harvest. It occurs on the third month, the month Silvan, May, June. It is also known as the Feast of Harvest. Exodus 23, verse 16. So it's the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Harvest. Three names, same feast. 
The third feast, and the one that is uh, of interest to us this morning, is the Feast of Booths, or also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. This coincided with the fruit harvest. This would coincide with the, with the olive harvest and with the grape harvest and with other fruits. This was a harvest that, or a feast that occurred in the seventh month, Tishri, the month September, October, end of September, beginning of October. It followed the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 30, 23, verse 34. This was also known as the Feast of Ingathering or the Feast of Jehovah, other names for the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, as it is called, followed Israel's national ceremony of atonement. So on the Day of Atonement, remember the high priest would go in with the blood to sprinkle it on the, the Holy of Holies, on the altar in the Holy of Holies, and this would be, a, this would be a, a ceremonial national cleansing of the nation. What followed the event of that day was the greatest celebratory feast of the worship calendar. It coincides with the fruit harvest. It's okay to celebrate a barley harvest. It's, uh, it's fine to celebrate a wheat harvest. But to celebrate a fruit harvest is a time of incredible joy and thanksgiving. And the crops lend themselves, need I say too much more, to producing certain adult beverages that coincide with joy and celebration. Okay? How's that? Is that clear enough? Okay. It is a mixed crowd. Okay? It is a time of joy and thanksgiving. It is a time when the nation would dwell in a simply constructed thatch huts for seven days, right? The booths. That's why they're called booths. And it was designed to be a time as they dwell in these booths and they would celebrate with the produce of the, you know, the fruits of the harvest. And it would be a time of joy and thanksgiving and it would be designed to remind them of their wilderness wanderings of God's sustaining grace, and of their final deliverance into the promised land. The Feast of Sukkot. This was an anticipatory, this was a prophetic feast. As I say, it followed Israel's national day of atonement. Thus, it looked forward to a time when Israel would finally, finally be reconciled, finally be cleansed, finally be equipped to fulfill her missionary purposes worldwide. Worldwide. Because until she is cleaned, cleansed, until she is reconciled, until, until she is equipped, she can never fulfill the purpose for what she was called in Exodus 19. Now, unlike Passover, unlike Pentecost... There is nothing in this present dispensation that fills up the imagery of the Feast of Tabernacles. The, the Feast of Tabernacles can be used in an, in an illustrious way as an illustration. I used it that way in a funeral yesterday. But the, but the symbolism built into this, the picture built into the Feast of Tabernacles, has not been filled up in this, in this present um, dispensation. It awaits its future fulfillment. In the millennial kingdom, both Israel and the Gentile nations, according to Zechariah, but not the church, 
The church is not called to come to celebrate the Feast of Booths in Messiah's kingdom. Only only Israel and only the Gentile nations are called. They are to come and to celebrate this feast every year. and And in doing so, the prayerful longing of Psalm 67 finds its full and final fulfillment. Okay? I have a quote here for you from uh, an old commentary, but a fine commentary on Zechariah. He writes, and I quote, Zechariah 14, 16 to 19, quote, The nations are represented as coming up to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles because the spiritual truth set forth by this particular type shall then be realized. For Jerusalem shall then be the metropolis of God's kingdom on earth, And the joy and blessedness foreshadowed by that feast will then not only be the portion of saved Israel, but shall also prevail or pervade all the nations of the earth. Close the quote. Okay? Only then. Only then. Will that which is built into the Feast of Tabernacles that Israel was to celebrate every year, and they still do today, at least some, Of course, they have no idea why they're celebrating it most. But it continues for them. It is an unfulfilled, prophetic reality. Okay. What do we do with all this? What do we do with this? Let me suggest just a few lines of application, ideas, thoughts. Selah. Think about them. You like them? Great. If you don't like them? Great. Come up with your own. So let me suggest a few. First, I think feasting is lost. Oh, I think we feast. Don't get me wrong. I think we feast. I think we do that well. But I think what is lost is the purpose of feasting. I think I think in the economy of God's people today, we have lost the purpose of feasting. And perhaps we can retake it. So here's just a thought. The thought is, is, is to open our homes and our hearts to those who are outside the family of God and include them in our feast. And, and, and as we do that, make the connection for them to the, to, the, to the grace of God, his abundant blessing and provision for us, and that this feast is in... Is in, is in um, remembrance of that and celebration of that and thankfulness and gratitude for that and, and kind of pull them in. So, so let our feast have an evangelistic purpose. Selah. Work with it. Secondly, recognize that, that our legitimate prayers for God's blessing are not so that we can merely live a more comfortable life. I have a greater purpose. There's a greater purpose, and it's to point people to Christ. So is it legitimate to to pray for the sick that God would heal them? Absolutely. It is absolutely. And should God choose to heal them, there is an evangelistic message built into that. Built into that. Think about how how to get it out. To nurses, doctors, medical workers, neighbors, family members?
praying for material needs. It's legitimate. But not if it terminates on me. Oh, Lord, please grant me this job so that I can live comfortably. Again, we wouldn't voice it exactly that way, but, but often I think we, we haven't made enough connections. So our prayers are, are too simplistic and truncated. By the way, if we see an evangelistic purpose when we're praying for the sick, we can pray beyond just, oh, Lord, heal them, which is legitimate prayer. But if he doesn't answer it, then what do we do? But if we see it as evangelistic beyond that, that prayer gets bigger and wider. Right? Oh, Lord, make yourself known through your, through your people in the midst of this terrible cancer. And, and, and if you would be so merciful to heal their, their body, oh, how we would rejoice in that. But, Lord, we know that it is bigger than that. And, and so if healing is not what you have chosen in this time, please draw them close to yourself and grant them the grace of Christ that they might draw close to him and through it, praise his name. John Piper wrote a book, Don't Waste Your Cancer. It develops that idea. Third, in keeping with the model of Psalm 67 and the book of Acts, I think when we share the gospel, we need to think about who it is we're sharing the gospel with. What kind of biblical content do they already have? If we're sharing the gospel with those who have an, a background and an, and an upbringing in the scriptures, then we, can, we take that and we, we move the story forward. We show them how Christ is the fulfillment of all that has gone before. But if they don't, and listen, in the world in which we're living, more and more and more people don't. Then we've got to treat people like pagans because that's what they are. And, and I don't say that to, in, in some sort of way like I'm looking down on somebody or I'm despising somebody. I'm just acknowledging the reality is that they are pagan. They have no connection to the living God. They don't even know he exists. Romans 1 aside. So what, what it means, I believe, is that more and more and more our evangelistic presentations need to emulate that which new tribes is doing in parts of the world, right? Where they, be, they do creation to Christ. Where they begin with the creator God and they, and they move the story forward and they show how he is creator and sustainer and lawgiver and judge. How he has prepared the way for the coming one. And then eventually to declare that one in Christ. Our evangelistic Training here, two ways to live. Some of you have been through two ways to live training, right? Two ways to live. The first slide. God is the loving ruler of the world. He made the world. He made us rulers of the world under him. Okay, what is that? That, that, is, a, that is a creation statement. It begins there with the creator God and who we are and why he made us. And, and then, of course, it moves to the fact that we, that we are not living out the purposes for which we have made. And then we can begin forward from there. So why, why, do we, why do we encourage that kind of evangelistic encounter? Because more and more and more, your neighbors and your family members, they don't know. I mean, they might know the name of Jesus, but, but what they know is, is so self-defined and so absent from reality. You've got to start at the beginning with people. 
You've got to establish that, that the one true God is the creator God. And because he's the creator God, he made them. And because he made them, then they owe to him all loyalty and, and, and the law and so forth, all an expression of his character and flow out to them. This is not about just having a nice life, you know, better life now. It takes time. What it means is that, is that evangelism encounters are, are less like selling a used car and closing the deal and a lot more like long periods of relationships where the truth is built step by step with a person until they come to know and see. Fourth and finally. I think regular reflection on and prayer for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ focuses our thinking. And by changing the way we think, it changes what we desire. And by changing what we desire, it changes what we do. So, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, so much more that could be said. Concepts are big. I pray that your spirit would apply his word needfully in each and every one of our hearts. Father, each of us, we, we need... We need to be changed in our thinking in certain areas. We need to be encouraged in our witness in certain areas. And so, Lord, will you do your work in us even now? Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for opening our eyes. Lifting the, the shades and stopping our ears, enabling us to see and hear and believe the truth. Oh, how we pray, Father. Even right now, for for someone perhaps here this morning who is yet to know Christ in saving embrace. Oh Lord, may you open their eyes. We ask in Jesus' name.